All right, everyone, welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. Today, I'm joined, as always, by my based co-host, Mr. Mark Yusko. Very specific wow. adjective there. Wow. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. And and thank you. And um, so many things to talk about, uh, but we'll start just with one. You know, I, I want to be like you, right? I want to be like you, <laughs> partners. And so, you know, last, know last week... Yeah, last week you were we were dealing with a, a case of food poisoning. So I on Wednesday had to have my own case of food poisoning. But I learned cold cuts can go bad. I didn't didn't really know that. And I guess it may sh- I should have realized that anything that they tell pregnant women not to eat, you should be careful of, not to avoid completely, but just be careful. That was a bad. That was a bad day. So I'm about to find now. Um, it's also oh, it's a day of mourning today. Mm-hmm. It's a day mm-hmm. of mourning. They have uh, officially ruled that the rocket emoji is is evil. So I had to wear. I so I'm doing a couple I things. Well, I have yeah. I have I have green pants on today, which I'll explain. But I have the rocket emoji socks with the history of Bitcoin on them. So the rocket emoji is alive and well in my life. In fact, I'm probably going to jail because I'm still going to use the rocket emoji because mm-hmm. that's just ridiculous. I mean, the CEO of a company can go up and tell can go on TV and tell people their car is going to appreciate. And that's okay, but if I use a rocket emoji, I'm promoting something. So okay. I'm wearing the green pants today because my wife finally nixed the orange every Friday. She's like, come on, get another car. So she got me some green <laughs> jeans. So I am channeling a childhood favorite of mine, Mr. Green mm-hmm. Jeans. So any boomers listening, remember Captain Kangaroo television show in the mornings before you went to school. And Mr. Green Jeans was this American vocalist he was referred to he was like a crooner and he'd play mm. his guitar and sing songs for us kids and i'm sure all kinds of bad stuff you know to adults you know playing with kids in the morning but anyway so mm. also good. for for the boomers in the audience based is an adjective and it's good i'm sure <laughs> crystal is laughing at both of us because crystal educated me told me what the meaning of base but uh I'm sorry about the food poisoning, Mark. That is, uh, look at you and I are just in sync. Obviously, in we are. Ways in one we, are. Um, we are. But uh, but I'm sorry that you went through that. I I want to jump right in uh, to kind of the big story of the week. We had Coinbase uh, is basically what I want to discuss here because we had Coinbase earnings and then we had the announcement that they were launching their own layer two base. Now I'll give you the TLDR before we jump in. Frankly, it's the most positive news that I've heard in crypto in some yeah. amount of time. Um, yep. You know, I, I don't want to be hyperbolic, you know, around this kind of stuff, but hey, oh, you know, sure like, you do. Go for it. Go for it. I'll say. I'll contextualize here, right? So during the last bear market, there were a couple of big kind of announcements or catalysts that, with with in hindsight, were super super impactful. Um, I always point to Facebook announcing Libra as one, even though it didn't immediately catalyze, uh, you know, big inflection in prices. What it did was it made this idea of stable coins and crypto very serious. It was validated by one of the largest Web2 giants out there. And then, of course, you had the Sailor Bitcoin buy. It was $450 million or something like that to start off that just nobody saw coming. And that really like catalyzed the, the whole price inflection. So I want to get into some of the details about base and, and layer two. But first, why don't we uh, you know start with something that's a little bit more digestible and just talk about uh, Coinbase earnings. So I can kind of give you the, the high level, but... Um, they were overall the, the earnings were good. Um, so revenue came in at six hundred and four million dollars on the quarter. Uh, that is over five uh, five hundred eighty one point two million in terms of the expectation. If you break that revenue down, um, three hundred eight million came from consumer trading. One hundred eighty two million came from 
uh, interest income. They actually bucketed that. Uh, I think that's actually just the uh, income that they're getting from USDC. So that's that's quite good. Uh, and then there was about $62.4 million that came in from staking and rewards. Um, so those last two buckets, that's kind of bucketed in their services and subscription part of their part of their balance sheet. Um, they also, you know, I sat in and listened to the analyst calls and there was a lot of talk about, you know, there's kind of an acknowledgement that they hired a little bit too quickly. Uh, so again, they're kind of like beating this drum about cutting operating costs. Um, so, you know, the employee headcount ended uh, at le- minus 4% quarter over quarter, still up 21% year over year, but they're trending in the right direction. They had a loss, net loss of $557 million this quarter, which again is, you know, pretty big number, but it's within where they guided basically for the year. And keep in mind with that, that they've got $5.5 billion in cash. Uh, one of the other things as well, if you sat and listened to the analyst call that was uh, pretty interesting is, you know, Coinbase has kind of previously guided that we're going to make our money when the sun is shining, make hay while the sun is shining and make money during bull markets. And the goal is to break even during these slower sort of down cyclical downturns that that we all call bear markets. Uh, Coinbase has changed their philosophy and they would now like to make a profit in all market conditions, which obviously is music. Uh, to Wall Street analyst ears. Yeah. Be curious, Mark, do you have any uh, uh, takeaway from the, the earnings call? No, I, look, I, I think uh, as you describe, everything you describe is is spot on. I, um, you know, I, 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 I am a big admirer and look, uh, full disclosure, we are material owners uh, still. We, we, you know, we were early investors and we sold some uh, to get some liquidity to return to shareholders of the venture fund. Uh, but we didn't sell everything, and, and are still very positive on on the team and and the the firm and 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 the future. So uh, I like how they're executing. Uh, look, Brian has made some very controversial decisions. Yeah. If you listen to the mm-hmm. Twitter sphere, and um, but they, in hindsight, look to be pretty pretty right. Uh, he has he has stood firm on principle. Rather than you know give in capriciously to to threats from the SEC, and I I, I admire that because um, it's really easy to say, oh, you're my regulator, so you know I'll just do what you tell me to do, even if I don't agree with it or if it's wrong. Mm. Um, so I think that there's a little bit, perhaps a little bit of telling people what they want to hear, right? <laughs> Aspiring. Sure. To profitability sure. in in tough periods, given haven't been able to do that, okay, but at least that's the right aspiration compared to there's so many companies still, you know, forty percent of you know the top two thousand companies in the country don't don't make money, yeah, and and some of them unapologetically. I was listening to this software companies just say, yeah, yeah, we lo- we lose money. On, on every sale, but, but, you know, and they, and they didn't say the words, but basically what they said, yeah, but we're going to make it up on volume. I'm like, Mm-mm, no, yeah. it doesn't work that way. And even when Jeff Bezos said it years ago, he was kidding, kind of. I mean, he, yes, he said, we'll make it up on volume in the essence that will fund these other things. And look, if it weren't for AWS, they wouldn't have made it up yeah. on volume. So I, the thing I am I'm super excited about about Coinbase is is this decision, as you said, to 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 go with base and to not try to create their own L1, like all these other, you know, exchanges that that have 
met uh, an ugly demise mm -hmm. uh, to to basically make an endorsement. It's not, not exactly an endorsement, but in, in essence, it's an endorsement of Ethereum as oh, a, yeah. a layer an one. endorsement. I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it is. I think it is. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to be too over promissory here, right? Because you know, if I use a rocket emoji or a cash tag or something, I'm I'm in trouble. But uh, a cash bag. Um, but I, I I I think it's it's really interesting, and I I think what people really just are still struggling with, yeah, is this transition. Right, TradFi, CFi, DeFi, and this is a move toward DeFi, clearly, and that's a good thing. But people just are still stuck on this: no exchanges are bad, and not your keys, not your coins. Like, please stop. Yeah, just please stop that. Yeah. Well, I want to, because you're, you're hitting on a lot of really important topics and I want to kind of break this down from the perspective of like a Wall Street equity analyst. And then I kind of want to yeah. move from the perspective of like a core, a core crypto person. So just to kind of set the stage, right? This is the kind of dance that Coinbase always does with the analysts on Wall Street. In general, you know, Coinbase has been phenomenal, uh, phenomenally profitable during kind of the boom times, the bull markets in crypto. And it's you know, a very pro-cyclical business, just like the vast majority are in crypto. Um, so it, you know, it's been kind of, it's kind of come under fire for the fees that it makes from its, uh, from the retail part of its business, right? The, uh, the analysts have pointed out rightly, probably that over time that fee is going to go down, right? Because we've kind of seen that the race to zero, uh, kind of play out over a long period of time in traditional finance. And, you know, right now there's a bunch of regulatory sort of reasons why it's hard to set up an exchange to compete, but over time it makes sense that that fee is going to go down to zero, so there's a bucket of revenue that's been extremely important for Coinbase, which is their services and subscription part of their part of their revenue, and that is the that's the figure that we were calling attention to uh, at the opening here. And they've got kind of a bunch of little buckets there. So there's one called blockchain rewards. That's their their staking income, which I was a little curious to see. You know that they launched a product called CBETH. Uh, for those of you who aren't uh, super deep in the weeds on crypto, they're plugging into an ecosystem that's uh, pretty hot. It's called liquid staking derivatives. That's where you can stake your Ethereum uh, in in the like you can stake your Ethereum, but still get basically a, uh, a liquid derivative of that that you can use to go about and uh, get yield and stuff in DeFi. And they launched that relatively recently. That's doing super well. So I was pretty curious mm -hmm. to see that that line item really was pretty flat quarter over quarter. Yep. Um, although obviously it's denominated mm -hmm. in Ethereum, so the price of Ethereum uh, changes a lot there. What they've done super well is the interest income. Right, and that's what the uh, that's the revenue share that Center, that's a consortium they have with Circle. Uh, there's a revenue share there, and the, the amount of revenue share depends on how much USDC is custodied at Coinbase. They get a higher share of what's overall distributed to them. And obviously, uh, Jerome has been doing his job. Uh, he's been he's been helping them out by uh, hiking interest rates. So that's yeah. been quite good. But 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 analysts focus an enormous amount on that bucket, right? When it comes to when it comes to these sorts of transactions, so. That's what they get. They, and I think they did a phenomenal job basically of addressing that. I guess the last thing is there were a bunch of uh, analyst questions about um, their staking program. And mm -hmm. you and I kind of covered this, uh, but basically there were, you know, they didn't get into the details here, but, you know, they reiterated the firm position, Paul Gruel, their uh, chief legal officer, that what they do in terms of staking is not a security. The rewards come from 
the blockchain. Again, there were some kind of mechanical details about how Kraken implemented its staking program mm -hmm. that led the SEC to believe that rewards were actually coming from Kraken and not necessarily from the block. So sometimes the devil is in the details when it comes to regulation and how different programs are implemented. So that all being said, I, I want to get into what this launch of base is because this is what equity analysts are going to be talking about in 12 months that, you know, they're going to say, oh yeah, we totally understood this. The, the price of Coinbase didn't move at all, right? So which tells right. me that there's there's not very much uh, recognition of what this means on Wall Street. Right. But right. what Coinbase did was they launched a layer two. They launched their own chain. So again, I guess the best way to describe this is there, there's an analog for this. Um, so actually Binance, uh, the, the exchange that a lot of people don't like, they actually launched their own chain as well called Binance Smart Chain. And actually, I'm pretty sure uh, it's it's hard. I don't know the the private valuation of Binance, but you know the public uh, you know valuation of Binance Smart Chain or BNB the token is it's in the it's a top five uh, token. I can uh, can actually get that for you here. It is yeah the market cap there is 48 billion. You know basically there's there's an enormous amount of value there. And yeah, see, I love it. My 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 site that I go to says 52. So somewhere. Within four billion, people know how much. It, no, no, no. It's just, yeah. it's just funny. There's so many data sources out there. I know. And what do you use? I was look. I'm looking at CoinGecko. I use um, what do I use? CoinCap. Mm, gotcha. CoinCap. So, um, and it's just, it's just interesting because I, I, I make light of that, but it's not that different in the traditional markets, right? You can go yeah. to the Hong Kong Stock Exchange and the London Stock Exchange and still see differences in prices. Now, they're not as big as they used to be because the arbitrageurs have come on and closed yeah. those gaps. Um, the ARBs aren't quite as as big here. And also, the data providers are not quite as solid, data. maybe. It's tough. It's tough. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. Um, but uh, they all get better. They'll get better with time. Yeah. But uh, so anyway, so there's a, there's kind of an analog there. Now, here, here are kind of some of the details um, of base, this, this chain that Coinbase is issuing. It's built on the OP stack. So the OP stack is something that Optimism built. Optimism is an is a layer two rollup that settles to Ethereum. Basically, the way of understanding this is there's a layer one smart contract where that's where you can kind of permissionlessly deploy any smart contract that you want. It's going to settle back and get the finality and security of Ethereum. Uh, the problem is it's very expensive. So uh, basically, we found a way to do something called rollups, which inherit the security of Ethereum, but the transactions are much, much cheaper. So Optimism has built that. And in fact, they're building something called Bedrock, which is going to enable layer threes. We don't need to get into the, the kind of nitty gritty weeds there. But what Coinbase did was all of this is open source. So they kind of basically took kind of the open source uh, OP stack and they built uh, kind of I would call it co-opetition, right? Like it's, uh, you know, it's going to be kind of good for everyone because it's building yeah. the pie, but it's, you know, if we're being real, it's kind of a competitive product with optimism. Um, sure. There's not, there's not going to be a token uh, to start with. There is going to be an ecosystem fund. So basically Coinbase is going to go and try to incentivize uh, projects to build on their platform. And um, the reason why this is such, this is so important is Coinbase has 108 million users, which first of all is nuts. That's about half as much as Netflix. So, you know, just to, just to give you a, you know, a frame of well, reference again, there. Just, just pause there for a second. Yeah. Okay. You know, my, my thing that I'm, I'm going to get in trouble for, right. With, with my rocket emoji is my probably hashtag, probably a fad with a rocket. Now somehow I'm going to get accused that that's financial advice. I'm like, why is saying something a fad? I mean, rocket just means it's a 
it's a it's a positive development. But anyway, mm-hmm. so you know this this probably a fad thing. Uh, what it means is something that's happening is real and and has has legs. The idea that that Coinbase, which a lot of people say, oh, crypto, it's a fad, you know, as I said, right? First they laugh at you, I and mean, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, a bunch of nerds and geeks playing through magic internet money. 108 million people. That, that just let that hang in the air. That's that's a that's lot fun, yeah. of people. That's a lot of people. In a relatively short amount of time, you know, Coinbase is a third as old as Netflix, maybe. Mm. Roughly, maybe twenty, maybe thirty percent is old, and so Netflix launched in '97, so that makes them. Uh, oh God, I'm going to twenty six. Yeah, and yeah. Coinbase launched in 2013. Yeah. They're ten years old. Yeah, less than half. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's it's really gratifying to one see that adoption, and and two, the. Netflix is a darling, right? It's one of the fangs and it's, 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 you know, what all of us kind of uses the standard now for entertainment uh, in terms of streaming. But even with all of that and being a global business, it's only twice as large in terms of, of daily active users. So I, I just think that's congratulations to, again, Brian and the team and, and uh, good for all of us. Hello, hello, everyone. Thank you all for listening to On The Margin. Just wanted to give you guys a heads up about a conference that we have coming up in the new year called Permissionless. I'm sure most of you have been there last year. Uh, It is the cultural event of the year. We had over 5,500 people down in Palm Beach. This year, we are moving to Austin, Texas. You know what they say about Texas. Everything's bigger in Texas. Uh, so last year, we had a really great lineup of speakers. We had the two co-founders of Robinhood, Vlad Tenev and Baiju Bot. We had Chris Dixon. We had some of the folks that have been on the show a whole bunch of times, Jim Bianco, Dan Tapiero. Just a phenomenal lineup of speakers, and you can expect the same this year. If you use Margin 10, you'll get 10% off on a ticket. Again, that's Margin 10, because I love you guys so much. Click the link at the bottom of the show notes. Hope to see you there in person. Yeah, you bet. Now, I, w- I want to get to the sort of revenue model here and why this is important. So ultimately, like... What the the goal of Coinbase and these these you know these blockchains in general is they want a bunch of people building applications on them and they want transactions being routed through routed through them. That is right. kind of at a high level how they make money. So the reason this is impactful is because Coinbase is probably the largest. Would you say like application that outside of Binance? I would guess like probably has the largest yeah. uh, base yeah. of consumers. Yeah. Yeah. It is going to push these people onto this chain. It's going to fund developers to build applications on this chain. It means a bunch of transactions happen there. Here's the way that they make money off of this in the beginning. And this was actually spelled out in an interview uh, of Empire. You should take a look at that uh, over here. Uh, but with Jesse oh, Pollock. And that's I can't the guy. believe you're plugging High road. guy. High road, baby. High road. Okay. You. <laughs> you know what? You, yeah. you are a better person than I am. You are a better person than I am. I, we got a healthy I, competition I, with those guys. Yeah. Yeah, co-opetition. Yeah. Yeah. Co-opetition. But uh, that, that was done with Jesse Pollock. Uh, he's the guy who's leading this at, at Coinbase. But basically, Coinbase has a, a wallet already, CV wallet, uh, that you can use to basically interact with this chain. Um, and you can do uh, native swaps, right? So that swap, uh, then you can take a look at MetaMask and their kind of in-wallet swaps and how successful that has been with a much, much smaller user base of about 6 million people. So that's a great way to monetize. Next, all of the kind of transaction fees, right, that this chain that's run by Coinbase is going to do, that is also going to be a source of revenue. 
Last thing, uh, this is not today. And again, I don't want to get too much into the technical details here, but in a layer two, there's something called a sequencer. Basically, it orders all of the transactions. That opens up the door to something called MEV, which is maximum extractable value, which for if you're listening on Wall Street, that's kind of a way that you can order the transactions in such a way that you can extract arbitrages or a profit, right? Now, Coinbase is not going to do that when it's they're running a sequencer alone, but there's a plan to decentralize the sequencer overall. And in that case, there's kind of an independent ecosystem of people that are extracting arbitrage, in which case that will be a huge revenue stream for, for Coinbase in the long run. This is like pure, in just in terms of like volumes and revenues, this is going to be a huge driver for them. And yes, there's a little bit of a risk of cannibalization of their legacy business, but man, do I respect this move from Brian and the team. It's a, it's a very it's, it's visionary a forward-looking play. Great example of giving up the good to embrace the great. Yeah. And that's the way great businesses run. Yeah. Always, right? Those that resist the, the new die. Yeah. You know, and, and there's, there's example after example after example of this is change is inevitable. Technological evolution is inevitable. And to resist, you know, Andy Grove wrote a whole, whole book about this, that, you know, the ability to recognize change with imperfect information is an absolute superpower. But what he said that I think is so interesting, and I talk about this a lot in, in my presentations, is he says companies don't die because they act incorrectly. They die because they don't act. They're paralyzed by what could happen that they just don't act and they die. And, and so to have the courage to act, knowing that yeah, this, this could cannibalize some of my core business, but I have conviction or we, because it's a we, collective we have conviction that this is going to be the, pro the proper evolution of the business, that's... That's how, that's what leadership is. That's, you know, that's my, that's my hashtag edge. That's, that's edge. That's, that's how you gain edge is you have courage. So I'm, I'm like two thumbs way up, you know, to quote Roger Ebert and uh, big round of applause and, and uh, as a shareholder, I'm pretty psyched too. A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, can I actually just to, on that exact point, there was a, uh, just to like round, round this all off, uh, because we were talking about kind of shareholder value here and, and little short balancing short-term versus long-term thinking. There's a thread that I saw on Twitter that was a really interesting, I'm going to give credit where credit is due here and see if I can uh, share my screen. But basically, uh, this was kind of an alternative history of uh, Netflix. The Netflix first, you know, everyone has everyone knows that kind of story of, oh, how dumb, uh, you know, Blockbuster was in that, you know, it didn't buy Netflix. Uh, so if you remember back to the, before Netflix was a streaming giant, they had that service of DVDs. I don't know if you're a user, but the Ippolitos were big early adopters of Netflix. Big, uh, big early. We were early investors and yeah. almost lost everything. Yeah. Did you? So yeah, there was a little bit of drama around kind of the quickster, but that's, again, I'm skipping forward in the history here. But you know, the, at the time, Blockbuster was kind of the giant in that space. And there was the CEO, John Antioco, right? And uh you know, contrary to kind of this revisionist history that you hear now, uh, Blockbuster actually did fight back. Um, so they actually launched something called Total Access. 
and you can actually see it. Here's what they actually shared this in one of their um, in one of their investor earnings calls. But you can basically see for those of you who are following along on video, you know, you can kind of see all of the the value propositions. It's international. You get they had a rewards program. They do in mail. They can do in store gaming. Uh, movie link. There's even a movie pass. So they basically bundled all of this in there for something like 19 bucks, and it basically brought Netflix to its knees. And that 50 million dollar offer that you hear uh, about is actually, you know, Reed Hastings going to Blockbuster, you know, hat in hand, and saying, "Hey guys, like you won. Uh, you can, you know, please purchase us." The problem was when this was all happening, uh, our favorite activist investor Carl Icahn had taken a stake in Blockbuster. Yep. And the stock was going down. And even though Blockbuster Access was growing like a weed, he was like, guys, I'm not seeing any profit from this. This is going to cannibalize your existing business. Then the great financial crisis, the GFC hits, and then it's like nothing that's not profitable, right? So Blockbuster actually had Netflix, you know, <laughs> they had them right boxed where they into wanted a corner, them. right where yeah. they wanted them. And, actually, yeah. and, and John Antioca, the CEO at that time, probably wanted to pull the trigger on that. And uh, instead, he was sort of stopped. So just... I love these sort of old business stories because it's kind of like who is ultimately right, right? You kind of hear these stories about management trying to empire build and like that's yep. definitely not good, but also a little bit of uh, vision and a little bit of willing to sacrifice profit even yep. if you can't see the revenue model quite yet. Obviously, that that pays dividends too. So it's kind of a you know survivorship bias, like who ends so, up being right. So many great lessons here. One, history is written by the winners, right? And uh you know, people, you're right, don't don't remember the real parts of the story. I mean, like I said, we we were early investors at, at Notre Dame and uh you know when when the discs, you know, the di you know, and we used the product, right? So yeah. they would come and they'd be broken or they'd get lost in the mail and you'd get charged and you'd be pissed off. And and so, you know, it was close to bankruptcy the first time. Then they made the switch to video on demand. VOD. Mm -hmm. Now, today we call it streaming. But the problem was a movie took four days to download. <laughs> four days. Yeah. A song yeah. took four hours, right? When it first downloaded, because we didn't have fast modems and, and all this. And the reality was no one was going to wait four days. No, it, you know, you weren't going to turn, because the problem is you turn on your computer, download something, what happened, you know, the power would surge or whatever, and they start over. It just, it just wasn't going to work. And so eventually over a series of years, they started to make progress and broadband came and, and, and things were looking good. But that, to your point, that's when Netflix or uh, Blockbuster did fight back up until the point of, uh, the, the, the short-termism versus long-termism, right? Short-termism, I need profits now. I'm, I'm an investor now. I'm, I'm, I'm not in this to be your strategic partner. And look, Carl Icahn is one of the greatest investors ever. I mean, yeah. just ever. Just, it's not close. I mean, he's, he's in that, that top four or five, and, but he's done it in a, in a very different way, not, not by strategically partnering with people and, and helping them build their companies, but by you know, old-fashioned green mailing, basically buying a stake and saying, buy me out. And and more often doing arbitrage or distressed investing or um, but he, you know, he he's good at what he does, but it has implications for to your point, long-term strategy and long-term thinking. So and and I would say that 
unfortunately, the overall markets have drifted that way in the social media age. Mm. That everything's so focused on how did you do yesterday or yeah. how'd you do an hour ago instead of how are you going to do five years out or 10 years out? And I think people of vision and, you know, you've talked, you, know, you mentioned Reed Hastings or Eric yeah. Schmidt or, you know, there are a couple of iconic leaders like this. Bezos. Um, yeah, Bezos. Be oh, Bezos. Famous for it, right? Yeah, I mean, oh, unbelievably famous for it, right? Yeah. And, and it just, but, but the thing about that is vision, people with vision are rare, like people who can actually envision something that doesn't exist, right? I, I, I've been tweeting around this, this uh, video of Steve Jobs, where he's mm. talking uh. about the future of computing. And I love watching videos of that guy. I mean, he was so, just so amazing. I mean, just yeah. such. Now, people say, oh, but he was a jerk and he was this. And, uh, maybe true. All those things may be true. But, but as a person of vision and as a person able to articulate vision and the future, and, and, and the, the, the quote I put on it is, look, talent is hitting the target no one else can hit. Right? Yeah. We can set up a target. We can all take our bows and arrows and, and we can fire. And, and a good archer will hit the target and everyone else will miss genius is hitting the target that no one else can see. I know. Like, I, I can't even see it out there. Where, where the heck is it? And, <laughs> and this guy's just drilling it every time. Yeah. And, and Bezos was, was that guy. And you know, it's funny. I'll, I'll tell a, a funny slash bad thing on myself for years. I mean, years I actively tried not to use Amazon. So I'm like, no, this is this is this is anti-competitive and and it's wrong and and it's it's usurious and the fees that they charge and and I'm going to support the little the little guy trying to build his their their own independent and lately because there are very few people who have executed as well, I've just had to give in, mm. and it's amazing. A couple clicks and bang, and I got I got a package coming today. Um, uh, after we talked. Uh, well, actually, while people were listening probably to, to last week's episode, my 12-year-old and I went out and played Airsoft. So for those who don't know what Airsoft is, Airsoft is <laughs> BB gun wars with like military-grade BB guns. And you wear all this protective gear. Yeah, those I things hurt. Oh, no, well, Airsoft guns are not messing around. I mean, I, I can sh I, I, I'll show you. I, I, I got some welts. Um, but, but more importantly... I forgot my I hat. Now, I, you know, my son wears his hoodie and uh, I was going to wear a hat, but I forgot it. And a lot of guys actually wear helmets, like these, mm. these military helmets. Long story short, uh, we're playing and, and, and I got pinged top of my head. Drew blood. <laughs> like, like drew blood. Yeah. And nah, I'm not, no, no peril, no nothing. Just, just a little flesh wound. But I got two helmets showing up today. Because when we go out this weekend, I'm not getting shot in the head again. So from Amazon, but yeah. um, because I asked, the, I asked the two like superstar guys, and these guys are fully decked out, all in military stuff. And uh, I said, so I said, where'd you get it? Like Amazon. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
get everything from there. Yeah, they're phenomenal. And you know, to your point about vision, like it is, it, it it's um, yeah, it's it's a very rare sort of skill set where it's like one of those things that everyone tells you in business, which is like very right, but also very wrong, which is just talk to your customers. It's kind of right. Like, like that's an yeah. okay way of doing it, but there's a layer on yeah. top of that, which is like, you have to decide which customers that you want to take seriously and listen to before. But, oh, no, no, you said it. Michael, talking to your customers is cheap. Listening to your customers yeah. is rare. Actually listening. Yeah. And then the most important, and, and this is this is big, and we'll get into the, the chat GPT thing and AI. Being able to ask the second question, mm. the follow-up question. This is your superpower, right? The thing I love about doing this with you is people say, oh, you know, be a good podcast host. You know, all you have to do is get good guests and let them talk. No, 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 no. To be a good podcast host, you have to do research and have a list of questions and engage the host, the guest. But more importantly, what separates the greats, the Rogans, et cetera, is the ability to actually listen to what the guest is saying mm. and then ask a better question. So a CEO that listens, that talks to their customers, it's, it's like, you know, I'm asking all these questions and I'm not even listening, they're just going over my head and I'm, I'm looking for the next you know, good person to talk to. That CEO is going to die. The CEO who listens but then ask the follow-up question. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. Okay. How quickly you get something matters. Well, like what range of quickness do you really care about? And what range of certainty do you care about? That's the genius. And that's what I think separates Amazon from other vendors. Like Walmart should crush Amazon on e-delivery. Mm -hmm. They have a far better warehouse system already set up. Right? They have volume advantage at the beginning to negotiate prices. They are the low price leader, right? They should have crushed. I, th I think the stat is 80% of the population live within 10 miles of an Amazon warehouse, but 80% of the population live within two miles mm -hmm. of a Walmart. I think that's, it, it, it's ish, right? It's close, but, but Walmart doesn't crush them. So, because their yeah. their fulfillment isn't as good, and their their experience isn't as good, and their their tech isn't as good, but the, uh, the, their AI isn't as good. And and you know, Bezos was one of the first to really embrace AI, along with Netflix. Right? They both used that. Hey, we have data on what you've liked, and more importantly, what people like you like. And so yeah. here are recommendations. But my <laughs> one my one warning about the AI. Mm. Is I don't know if you you saw the story this week about the guy who challenged Bing. I, I can't remember the name of the Bing. Kevin Roos. This is the this is the New York Times reporter who did the like, hey, Hangman. Is, is, oh no, no, no. This is the one that did Hangman. So he's challenging it to Hangman, and it said, okay, it's a eleven letter word, and he uh, said O, oh, and it puts it in the last thing, and then he did a bunch of other letters and he got them wrong and. And he had explained, yeah, now you're supposed to give me a body part. And, and long story short, he noticed that like it wasn't consistent and he was getting this weird feedback. And, and then it got to the end and it did a word. He said, I guessed four of those letters. And he says, oh, well, I inferred from your misses a word to write. 
said, no, that's not how the game works. And so it cheated. Mm. So the, and, and it, so the, 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 the message in there is if you ask a chatbot a question and it gives you an answer and you accept it with no skepticism, no doubt, no, hey, is this exactly it? That's dangerous. Super mm. dangerous. Mm. And anyway, it's one of my I, personal look, pet peeves right now. I'm with you on the, I, the you know, I'm, I'm a closeted Luddite. You know, I, if I wasn't working in crypto, I'd be one of those people, like old man screaming at the cloud uh, that like a lot of technology is bad. I, you'd be I, a librarian. You'd be, a, be, you'd like, be yeah. a librarian in the hall, in the long hall <laughs> in, uh, in Dublin uh, at Trinity University. With with all the busts of the famous philosophers, you would be that guy in the. I would love to the, be there. The blazer, here, yeah, with the little uh, uh, elbow. Yeah, pads. the patches, the patches on the elbows. Yep. Here, here's the thing. I just don't. I'm not uh, steeped enough in AI to know. There's like kind of two, you know, camps. I'm sure there's more than two camps, but from my like, you know, rudimentary kind of digging, there's the camp of people that's like, look, AI is ultimately pretty dumb. You know, it's kind of like it's this black box, but ultimately it's just layers of regression and it's just doing it's it's it looks like the smart machine, but ultimately like it's nothing to worry about. Then there's this other group of people, which is like this is, you know, it could be the end of mankind. Right. And it could be this thing which teaches itself at like a rapidly evolving rate. And, you know, mm -hmm. one hour in AI land could be like a thousand years of human evolution. And this thing is going to be Skynet 2.0. I, you know, I have personal biases towards one or the other. but I, you know, everyone kind of says this about new paradigm technologies. And at the end of the day, this is going to get developed by someone, right? Uh, I think it's pretty impossible to like stop the development of AI. So I would hope that, um, I would hope that we just find a way to do it responsibly. And one of the, the, the other thing I'll point out about OpenAI, the company, you know, props to Sam Altman, like it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's going to be huge, obviously, and there's an enormous investment from Microsoft. It is a little bit weird that it was initially founded as a nonprofit way to implement AI in a, uh, you know, in a responsible manner. And now it's a very much for-profit, you know, developer of artificial intelligence, like a bit of a mission. Oh my gosh. Well, and and, and there, the, the T in GPT was created by Google. Yeah. Right. The transformer code, which they put into this foundation, you know? So yeah, it, it's, it's, but that is actually one of the cool things about open source. Yeah. Right? I mean, I, I've told the story about Red Hat, right? When they first pitched it to us, we're like, what? You can mm. give away software and that's profitable? How is that profitable? Because I, you know, I was thinking the old school business model, you know, get a charge for the boxed software. And like, no, 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 no. It's, it's the iterative process of all yeah. the hive mind building on top of it that then we can exploit and you know, sold for forty billion dollars to to IBM. So, um, and made Raleigh a really cool town. Um, but I I think I want to transition just about about macro just for a second. I've actually know. I've got some slides on macro here. So good. I'm going to pull good, these good, good. up. But I just, I want to set the stage with saying that if you asked people, you know, how's the market, the equity markets over the last month? Everybody's oh, they're up a lot. They're not. They were up a lot the first couple weeks, and now they're kind of downish to flattish. You know, the the Dow is actually mm. flat for the year. 
Yeah. Um, Nasdaq's still up a decent amount, but it's it's basically flat for the last month. And and I think there's a, a pretty big yin and yang going on between realities of of economic data and narratives of of no landing. And I, I did uh, the podcast with Rosie a couple weeks ago, and he was just going off on no landing. I, I it's just, just it's insane. You know, can mm-hmm. they not read their own data? Like. No, I mean, they, they can, but they're choosing not to. Yeah. And they're crafting a narrative that suits their, you know, objectives. And narratives are crazy. And I'm, I'm, I'm just all about, I think data is better than narratives. And the data, it's not really good. Yeah. So if you're following along via, via video here, we're looking at Google Trends. Uh, this is interest over time for the search term soft landing. And you can see that, uh, you know, spiking higher basically uh, over the course of the last couple of months. I love it. So, you know, that's that what you're reminding me of there. First of all, we've had Rosie. Rosie was on, I think, three months ago or something on the interview, the interview part of On the Margin. He was basically saying the same thing, which is, look, guys, this isn't the end of the world. Right. Uh, But also, you know, the time to be the time to be bullish on stocks is not you know, when we have a deeply inverted yield curve and the Fed is still hiking rates, right? Uh, And they haven't seen the slack that they want to see in the labor market, which is still at, you know, the last time I checked, it's like 65-year lows or something like that. We haven't Mm -hmm. done quite enough. Uh, So I think that was his like broad point. And we probably went into much more detail with it with you recently. But yeah, it's it's tough. And and the thing that I think, I didn't understand this until I, uh, you know, until I got into crypto, but I have a deeply, I I have a conviction in this idea that narrative follows price, not the other way yes. around. Yes. Um, you know, stocks go up, they go down. Ultimately, very few people understand what's really driving prices, but people need an answer, right? Like it's the number one thing people get asked, like why are stocks going up or why are stocks going down? And they need to attach these, these narratives to them. And that's where you get this stuff like hard landing, soft landing, no landing. I mean... You know, what we're talking about, I mean, no one was talking about no landing a month and a half ago. I mean, that's just because prices have recovered. Although I will say I'm doing my little amateur TA kind of thing where I'm drawing a line on a chart. We do have this kind of pattern of uh, making higher lows, which I know is something that that you talk yep. about a lot. Yep. So yep. I'm a little, I'm a little, I, I've lost, I don't have much conviction on on the way things are going here. I'm I'm going to sit this one out and, and not have an opinion because I could certainly yeah. make a case for things getting worse. I could also make a case for, you know, instead of correcting in in price, we correct in time and things chop for a little while. So yep. I, I just don't know is my honest answer. But I want, I want to give uh, listeners here a little bit of a, a look. So there were some revisions from the previous, uh, you know, GDP basically. And uh GDP was, you know, revised a little bit lower. If you're looking at, um, so this is Q4 for 2022, uh, and it's just it's always interesting for me to to kind of see, you know, what is driving GDP, what are the big sectors. So, you know, in the positive category, you have consumer spending, which is still relatively strong, but down a little bit, uh, you know, quarter over quarter, and inventories uh, and and net exports. Those are the big the big categories. Also, government spending, haha, uh-huh. mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. which is interesting for. It's interesting that that's driving positive GDP at a, at a time when, uh, when theoretically they're supposed to be putting the brakes on. Uh, the drag on GDP is uh, housing, right? And we knew that that was going to be the case. It's the same thing that's uh, going to be, you know, Im- impacting CPI as well. This is a big lagging indicator. So, 
that's I mean that's a look at GDP. I'm not sure if you you know have much much more thought there, but no. Look, I said I think Q3 and Q4 GDP was essentially not completely, but essentially an SPR trick. Um, you know, you release the oil from the SPR, you count it again. Okay, great. Um, and then you had a little bit of of the the fake. I call it the fake retail sales, mm. which is prices are higher, so you're spending more. Is that really GDP? I, I, mean, I guess technically it is, but I I I don't I don't like that. Um, so look, I I think you know consensus for Q1 is zero. You know GDP now has some big number like two and a half. You know, Atlanta Fed is is I would say more accurate than the consensus, but they're mm. not they're not infallible. Um, I would I would take the under on that two and a half, but but we'll see. And ultimately, this idea of, of no landing to me is 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 kind of kind of silly, right? Because no landing implies that we're still at thirty thousand feet cruising along in the air. That that's clearly not the case. This is not a perfect economy. You know, we had a, a year over year change in GDP last year of zero point nine. That is stall speed. Right? That is below the natural rate of growth, um, which is around 2%. So that is definitionally a recession. Now, they're not going to call it a recession because of the, the, the fake jobs numbers. Here's, oh, here's a crazy, crazy thing, Michael, that I talked with Rosie about. I think I may have mentioned this last week. The million and a half jobs, quote unquote, that were created in the last year, you know, all those are are this BLS nonsense of the birth death ratio, right? And but here's the crazy thing. You know, Rosie pointed out, and I just saw it again. Uh, corporate bankruptcies surged to new highs, particularly mm. in the fourth quarter. And so, if companies are going bankrupt, how can there be net positive birth death? Right? Just mm. definitionally, and so. They're clearly just ignoring that and saying, hey, we're still in an expansion. Therefore, technically, the birth-death ratio is X, and we're just going to ignore that corporate bankruptcy data. And the number of bankruptcies slash layoffs, I don't know. Those all seem to be up and to the right, uh, Yeah. Me. Here, let me get this data. I, I don't want to um, misquote this here, but there was, uh, there was an earnings call uh, from ZipRecruiter. I don't know mm-hmm. if you, uh, I don't know if you caught mm-hmm. this, but uh, there were some pretty choice choice words from the the CEO Evan Siegel. So basically, you know, he's in his words. I'm kind of paraphrasing here. This is from Peter Bookvar's uh, note. Peter's yeah. been on the show multiple times. Highly recommend him. But basically, you know, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. But he said clearly we're in a macroeconomic slowdown. Online recruiting has effectively cooled across the country, especially among small to medium businesses. So if you look at other job companies at our scale, they're delivering the same message that we're delivering today. And similarly, or correspondingly to what you'd expect from a macro slowdown, we're seeing a surge in job seekers. When there are less jobs, it's going to take these job seekers longer to find work. And that is, in fact, what we're seeing. So based on that backdrop, we made the assumption using the information that was available to us at the time from January, that there's going to be a softer hiring environment throughout 2023, and we don't have a better prediction than that. Yep. Um, and in addition, you know, I thought this was pretty interesting. Uh, this is a quote, uh, the golden age of job seekers is coming to an end. For the last three years, it's been an unprecedented time for job seekers to make a number of demands on employers, 
but we're definitely seeing a rebalancing of the labor market where the leverage is becoming equalized. So, you know, it might, you know, to your point, I think the, the Fed has their data sources that they like to look at, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe that's just mm-hmm. habit. Maybe that's, uh, you know, relying on some of these, yeah. they don't understand some of these new technologies that have more, um, you know, real-time sort of data, whatever it is, like, there are different stories that you could tell about the economy, but kind of some of the more forward-looking indicators definitely do, you know, I think support. We showed Zillow, the Zillow index of rent, which kind of leads uh, price. Yeah. So that, you know, was was trending lower, you know, kind of on the ground. You know, ZipRecruiter has a lot of real-time data about the hiring environment. It, it, it doesn't paint a super rosy picture. No, but- and it, it comes down to liquidity. Ultimately, mm-hmm. everything comes down to liquidity. And, and so on the negative side, U.S. money supply growth went negative, right? Hadn't yeah. been negative for almost 100 years, for 96 years. It's pretty cr- incredible when you think about it, 96 years straight of, of increasing the money supply. Um, but that leads economic activity by 16 months. So you, you, you're going to have a downturn um, and inflation is going to moderate. Um, and the shelter component of... Uh, Inflation is is collapsing, so that that's all going to moderate. And I don't think it's mm-hmm. going to go negative and deflationary, but but it, it's going to going to moderate. But the the thing that that is countervailing, and you know the cross border capital guys. I don't know if anybody knows them, but they're amazing. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean just yeah. just amazing. Yeah. And uh, and they have the chart, and I've been tweeting it out a lot lately. It's a trillion with a T, trillion since October. And, you know, we just did a webinar on China. So, you know, we have a team on the ground in Shanghai and and we do growth equity investing in China and getting ready to raise a new fund. And so we did a webinar uh, on Wednesday and and the team had gone through all the data and, and, you know, all the things that are happening with reopening. And they showed this video that was actually really cool. We had one of our, our analysts go out in the street with her iPhone and she just took a picture of downtown Shanghai in October, and it was like a neutron bomb went off. I mean, there were no people, no cars. I mean, it was mm. it was spooky. And this wasn't like a ghost city. This was Shanghai. Mm. And then she went out uh, a week ago, same stood in the same spot, and was doing the, the iPhone thing. And it was bumping. like what you see in the movies, right? Bumper to bumper traffic people with shopping bags, you know, going in and out of the mall, you know, chowing down on, you know, the amazing food in Shantandi, which is like this awesome kind of outdoor marketplace and retail, high-end retail. Awesome. If you ever go to Shanghai, go to Shantandi and, and hang out. It's just awesome. And uh, I, I actually, I love the story of Shantandi. So it was a slum. It was a slum. And the slum was notorious because the ratio of, uh, toilets to people was one to 40. There was one toilet for every 40 people in Shantindi. Doesn't and seem like a recipe for success. Not, not a recipe for success, right? <laughs> and this developer said, I, I want this land. I mean, it's right on the Bund and it's, it's, ooh. and the government said, okay, here's the deal. You build a new city on this other land that we'll give you for free. And you have to have one toilet per four people, mm. so one per household. Transport all the people 
to this new place and you can have the land. And they did it. I, hmm. I just think that's awesome. And so those people's lives got improved. Now I'm not saying that they're super better, but they're definitely improved. They didn't get displaced like by, you know, um, force majorum. And uh, uh, what's this, the other one um, that I'm, I'm blanking on anyway, where the government can just Eminent domain. Eminent domain. It wasn't eminent domain. I mean, it kind of was in the sense that they moved them, but they moved them to better accommodations. And now they have this great, you know, retail center that, but, but the point there was China is reopening. But again, the, the, the focus was on consumption and evolution of the middle class. And so, you know, we're all debating this whole nonsense of trade wars hmm. and, and that, and it's like, they don't care. They hmm. just want their people to get jobs, to spend money and to live the life, you know, that, that we pursued from 1970 to, to 2020. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. Yeah, it, it is. And, you know, this is, you probably heard me say this a bunch of times that you have kind of an on the ground team in China. I I sometimes feel like I, I don't have much of an edge there. And especially just because the regime and sort of the, the culture is so different in between the US and China, like sometimes I look over there with my American eyes and I probably see things that aren't super accurate because I have a very specific worldview. I think the, sure. you know, the lens that I think is safe to speculate on is kind of um, you know, I've heard you say in, in the past, right, China was a big force in getting us through the great financial crisis, right? They injected a whole bunch of-, of Four liquidity. trillion. Yeah. So here's my question to you, right? Because one of the things I've noticed is a couple months ago, I saw a whole bunch of charts about US dollar liquidity and how that was lined up with the S&P. Now I see a whole bunch of charts uh, with global liquidity, right? Because the US liquidity relationship sort of broke. And, you know- Sometimes I think you kind of see that and you're like, oh, the, the charts kind of match. But I'm trying to understand the flows here, right? I, I want to know how, you know, injections and in liquidity in, yeah. you know, how, how, how does the Bank of Japan buying JGBs lead to, you know, meme stocks ripping over in the United States? Like, what's the, I get it at a high level, but help me understand how the money actually moves there. Like, is global liquidity the thing we should be paying attention to? Yeah. No, it, it's a Ken. Fantastic question. That that is the question to ask, and it has to do with uh, financing of the the financial system. So, mm. you know, Japan in particular is one of the primary carry trade financing centers, and has been for because they had zero interest rates. So you could borrow at zero, you could take that cash and go buy other assets, whether it was 
you know, U.S. hedge funds doing it or, you know, European hedge funds doing it or whatever. Mm-hmm. And basically the Bank of Japan facilitated that whole thing by just being the buyer of last resort for the bonds. Because who would buy a bond that paid zero interest? Who would buy a 30-year bond paying zero interest? Well, no one. So the Bank of Japan waves it in, prints money, puts that money into the system. Then foreigners come and borrow money from those Japanese banks, pay them basically no interest, but they don't need interest because they're being kept afloat by by the, the Bank of Japan. And, and this is why Kyle Bass just like wants to pull his hair out. And he has great hair, by the way. But uh, he wants to pull his hair out because he's been saying, well, this is not sustainable. And, and there's, you know, there's these books written that once you get to 100% debt to GDP, it has to fail. Well, they're at 226. It hasn't failed. So, so that's part of it. So the Japanese carry trade and just the money actually ends up in meme holder mm. uh, accounts because – Goldman borrows a bunch of money from a big Japanese bank and starts buying stuff. Well, then they offer, well, it's not Goldman, it's, it's UBS and Merrill Lynch and, and, you know, and Robinhood. And then they give all their users credit. So that's why margin debt in the United States went like this. So the, the two things I watch are, are margin debt. So mm-hmm. if margin debt's expanding, then the meme stocks are going to rip. If margin debt's contracting, meme stocks are going to get get crushed. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, last year, margin debt collapsed because people had to make margin calls because stocks were going down and, right. it, and exacerbates. But starting in October, starting China floods up. the world with money and that money finds its way into the big houses, Ken Griffin's house first, always. And <laughs> No, I'm serious. I mean, they had their record year last year, right? And hey, constitutions yeah. aren't free. You know? A- absolutely. <laughs> you know, that's exactly right. And if you know, if you're gonna crush the souls of of the Dow that wanted to own that piece of history, mm. you you know, you, you have to you have to be pretty good at your job. So um anyway, we digress. Uh and, the and margin you know, debt. What no, was no, the other one? Debt, no, margin debt and, and the second one is is these global liquidity, because mm. your, your point again is, is your, your, your question is so insightful in that, well, wait a minute, it, it looked like U.S. liquidity was expanding, but then it contracted. Mm-hmm. Well, then, then how is global liquidity suddenly, well, it's because, and, and you see this in, in currencies, it's because I believe there is a concerted collaboration, right, that these central bankers get together and and it's 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 a process of saying okay um you europe ecb you're going to have the strong currency so the rest of us can devalue our currencies and be mercantilist and sell a lot of stuff globally all right so you're in the hot box for for the next nine months then we'll get together again and now you japan you're in the hot box or you the u.s Last year was the U.S.'s turn, right? The U.S. had to have the strong currency so the euro could be super weak because Europe Europe was on the verge of collapse. Yeah. Remember all the dire things about in Europe? European stocks have crushed, have crushed it because they were able to devalue and sell a bunch of stuff, machine tools and cars uh, that they wouldn't have otherwise been able to sell because China was closed. So- 
Um, and the yen, the yen was, I mean, obliterated. Yeah. Obliterated down 30% through October. And then, bam, recovered yeah. two thirds of that. And so I believe there is a coordinated liquidity provision. But at the end of the day, unfortunately, uh, unfortunately for the masses, it is all net fiat generative, which means net inflation generative, which means net channeling of wealth to the top of the pyramid and impoverishing the masses. And mm. that, I think, is unfortunately how it works. You know, it's a... So it's a... Um, again, you and I think a little bit differently about this. I I think it's overall, right, the economic theory, which oh, is Because so like, I'm sinister in your sunshine. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that, exactly. That's our, that's our yin and yang. That's right. That's our yin and yang. Totally. And, and I look, I can understand the idea that, you know... I can understand the idea that you want uh, an inflationary currency is uh, sort of stimulative for 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 economic activity, right? If you're yeah. if if you lose a little bit of purchasing power, it kind of nudges you a tiny a tiny wee bit to on the margin yeah. uh, spend a little bit more ah, now, on the margin. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So here's here's where I want to end it here because this is something that uh, you know kind of hand up. At least I was I was wrong about and. Still, you, you know, you, I, I kind of watch these these fierce debates about this, but it's kind of the the health of the American consumer here. And yeah. what we're looking at is, you know, sort of excess savings. That's the the green chart on the top. Yep. And you know, you know, a lot of and we've shown it on the show here. Like it looks like right, uh, consumer credit card debt is kind of going up and to the right, and it's above yep. its kind of pre COVID trend level. But if you look at excess savings among households, it's far above where it was in in 2020. And 100% great insight. The one thing we need is the separation of that green bar mm. into four quartiles. Top quartile households, second, third, and bottom quartile households. And I will bet you that if you broke that green bar into four quartiles, the dark green at the top, which is high income households would be mm. super big. The second would be smaller, the third is smaller. And at the bottom, the low income households, infinitesimally small, gone. Those are the people who are increasing their credit card usage. Those are the people you're not seeing at the mall. Those are the people you're not seeing on airplanes. The rich are still good. And so, they got handouts too, which makes no sense to me. How is it possible that we I made know. handouts to everybody instead of based on need? Just makes no sense. I know. I'm aware. I, I, it, but so that chart that you're asking, that's what we've got on the bottom. That's, oh, uh, oh, that's, that's broken out by second, middle, fourth, bottom. And actually, and actually, you are correct. Uh, with, with one, with one flip, it's actually the middle income households that have done, uh, done the best in terms of say, and then it's top and then it's second, third. Ah, and, and, and you can see okay. that no, the, the lowest income house, but again, this is, you know, it's just tricky. It's because if you look at real wage growth, um, by, by that same bracket top, mm -hmm. you know, second, middle, fourth, bottom, the bottom income has done the best in terms of real wage gains over the, yeah, course of the last X years. Yeah. So all legislatively. Is, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's all tricky picture. And, uh, you know, again, go, this is looking at uh, delinquencies here, but again, the trend here over the, the course of the last couple of months isn't great because delinquencies are ticking yeah. up, but they're still 
low relative to historic averages. And I will yeah. say though, on the student loan, student loan amount, a lot of these are in, uh, those are still in forbearance, you know? So you yeah. got to take that. The with problem those, like, is Michael, that if you get a $200 a month raise, it's nice. It's good. Awesome. Mm-hmm. But if your mortgage payment goes up by a thousand bucks, you're screwed. Yeah. And that's what's happening with adjustable rate mortgages. I, I just I just went through it, right? I, I told the story. 10 years ago, I did an adjustable rate, 10-year adjustable. I didn't even, don't even remember doing it. And my rate went from three to seven. That's that's no good. So I'm I'm quickly refinancing, which has turned out to be a total nightmare. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is so funny. Banks hate business owners. They mm. love W-2 employees. Mm. They're like, if you could just make way less money, but have it be on a W-2 instead of being the owner of the business, we'd like you way better. I'm like, that makes no sense. Makes makes no sense. I'm in the same, I'm in the same boat. You know, one thing that is that same principle, by the way, it took me a long time to wrap my head around in crypto specifically. Regulators hate the underlying, but they're totally fine with the derivatives that are oh tied to the underlying. Again, it's like, with I, the questions. Michael, you, know, you are you are a mad genius with and the it's second kind of like, order thinking questions. So you good. guys know this makes no sense, right? You know, that people love so and by the way, I love CME, love those guys, but like you know, you're I get that you've got the market structure and all the regulatory stuff. But it does if, make if sense, the, Michael. If the underlying See, your sunshine fails, be sinister for a minute, it makes perfect sense. When you realize that why do they love the derivatives? Mm. Because you can naked short the shit out of Bitcoin and depress the price mm. and foment fear. That's why they love the derivatives. Sinister Saturday. Hey, I, hey, you might be right. And by the way, we, we haven't talked about this, but uh, I'm not sure if you saw it. You know, Silvergate that had their, their bank run. Who took a big share out of uh, Silvergate? It's your boy. It's Ken Shocking. Griffin. Uh, shocking, shocking. <laughs> I mean, shocking. I no, one of I five know. Smartest it's... people. No, he's one of five smartest people on the planet. Ken gets what Ken wants because Ken Ken is a man of vision, and Ken, the only guy who's as good at buying distressed assets that are important is John. Um, Oh my gosh! Why am I blanking on his name? Um, no, 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 no. The fa- well, John Malone was good too, mm. um, but uh, the, the famous Enron trader, um, John Arnold. I mean, and John is probably as smart as as Ken. It's close, but um, you know, my favorite was when when the Macundo spill happened, mm. um, and they basically said no more leases to drill in. Uh, the Gulf of Mexico, John went out and bought them all. And today, this is crazy, this is a crazy number. Today, those leases that he bought for pennies on the dollar, because everyone was going bankrupt, generate half a billion dollars of cash a year. Can I? Um, he's amazing. He's amazing. He's amazing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, those stories are some of my favorites. Uh, but let me, let me leave you with a, a thought. And I'm not sure how I feel about this. I'm just going to leave it here. So you could actually make a pretty strong argument that if TradFi won the on-ramps into crypto, a lot of the tension that you see between 
regulators and government and crypto would go away. You know what I mean? This is this is an insight from- You heard it here uh, first, y'all. Y'all y'all record this, archive it, come back to it. You heard it here first. That is where this is headed. That I think it probably absolutely is absolutely where this is headed. Yeah. And you I hope we get first. one. I hope Michael Coinbase- I hope Coinbase. Uh, I I wish I, I'm borrowing from much smarter people than than me, but I, you know, I I think probably give them a stake, give them some upside, right? And if you if you do that, then yeah, you might suddenly see regulators and government act a lot more favorable, friendly. And you know what? J- By the JP way, JP Morgan Base, JP Morgan Base. That's that's what I see in the future. JP Morgan Base. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I mean, here, Bank and, of and America you know based. Here's, here's the thing, by the way, that I also think would they would solve a big problem of, let's just be real. Last year was a, a colossal shit show. It was a dumpster fire of, you know, and by the way, like people lost money. Like a lot of people, a lot of retail people lost life savings because let's just call, a, I don't mean this in an unkind way, but like there was a lot of amateur management at some of these companies yeah. that were managing billions and billions of dollars. Yes. And, yeah. and, you know- you you have to you have to call balls and strikes here. Like that was a big black eye in our industry. And yep. I gotta tell you, for all the faults TradFi had, they well, I don't think they would have made that mistake. It, I I think honestly they would have had the the off ramps would have been on ramps and off ramps would be it's, safer. It's sins of omissions and sins of commission, right? Yeah. That the TradFi has the knowledge and the experience of how the financial system works, but they're they're reticent to go to the new rails because the old rails are, are good for them. The new age innovators, they don't really understand exactly all the, all the rules. And, and so they're like, oh, I, I can wing it. I, I, I can be a lender. I don't know how to yeah. lend. It's hard. Mm-hmm. And it, it was the, they didn't intend like, you know, BlockFi or, Maybe I don't know about Celsius, but but Voyager, BlockFi, some of the they didn't intend to be defrauded by FTX, right? That's not yeah. what they intended. That that was not their intent. They didn't intend to have big bad loans. They didn't intend for a single loan to suddenly be twenty percent of their book. That wasn't the intention. But what they didn't know because they'd never experienced it was your assets can fall eighty percent. There can mm-hmm. be bank runs. There can be market corrections. So you. You, you think 7% to a single borrower is, is safe. Well, not if you can't change it as your AUM goes down and becomes 21 or 31. So to your point, it wasn't, it wasn't an intentional sin, but it was still a sin, right? You, yeah. you failed to act, therefore it's a sin of omission. And anyway, so I... Oh, we could go on all day. Um, I know, but I know, I know both of us can't. And uh, great conversation. I do want people to to kind of timestamp that that prediction that you had, which is there is a resolution coming, and it's going to have to do with uh, a co-optition, shall we say? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, bring it back to based. Right, everybody's going to get based. Everybody is going to kind of because the future is going to happen. Blockchain is going to happen. The rails, ACH and Fedwire, Swift, it's going away. It's going away. And whether it's all going to be ruled by the new or the old, it's probably this. Yeah. And again, I'll just put my hand up and say I was. I can very, very uh, vividly remember 
doing a recording probably a year and a half ago, you know, when things were good, saying, hey, there's no way that uh, TradFi is going to be able to acquire these companies. Why would why would Coinbase ever sell? So look, I mean, take all this with a grain of salt, right? Like it's very hard to control and moderate your emotions through these insane ups and downs that we have in crypto. But I think it's, a you know, there's a moderately good chance. Before we sign off, I want to give a shout out to our mutual friend, Dan Tapiero. Dan is, uh, he just announced uh, and, and BlockWorks reported on it that uh, he, you know, he's targeting a new, uh, you know, PE fund uh, at a billion dollar raise. Uh, so, you know, just phenomenal. I mean, he's deployed, I think it's over a billion, like 1.2 billion in crypto so far. Uh, he's got a great vision, I think, in terms of like taking some of these later stage companies public because dirty little secret about crypto, there isn't aren't very many successful exits that you can point to in uh, in 10 or so years. So yeah, yeah. yeah. I think uh, overall, just want to give a shout out to Dan. He's go Danny, go. Yeah, yeah. All right, Mark, best of our my week, my friend. I will, uh, I will see you soon. Ditto.